0: Okay, brothers and sisters, please open up your Bibles. Um, We're going to be in the book of Jeremiah today. Uh, Jeremiah 23. Please turn to Jeremiah 23. We'll be studying verses 1 to 6. So if you want to open that up now. to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture declares the Lord therefore thus says the Lord the God of Israel concerning the shepherds who care for my people you have scattered my flock and have driven them away and you have not attended to them behold I will attend to you for your evil deeds declares the Lord Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them and I will bring them back to their fold for they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them. They shall fear no more nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch And he shall reign as king and deal wisely. And shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. And as we come to this part of our worship service now, Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts by your sovereign grace. Lord, that your word would come to us today as a precious thing, not as, a, as a, a thing to be ignored, not as a thing to just put to the back of our minds. But, Father, that we would treat this word as if it were truly the word of God and not the words of some preacher, not the words of some man, but the word of God. And so, Lord, we pray your grace be effective today to grow us, to develop us, to strengthen us in our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ and to convict of sin and of righteousness, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. It seemed fitting, given what's happened this past week as Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II passed away, it seems fitting that our passage today, concerns the reign of a king. A royal king who is going to deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness who will bring peace and salvation for his people. This word from the prophet Jeremiah, it was given to him by God in a time when wicked kings... Wicked kings and despotic rulers reigned. Men ruled violently. Men ruled selfishly. Men brought destruction and disaster upon the people of Israel and Judah at this time. And this week I found myself, to be honest, quite moved as I played a a video of a, a young man, he's a musician, playing the national anthem. On his piano in tribute to the Queen, I found myself quite moved and touched by the whole thing in a way that I, I didn't expect. And I think what touched me so much about the passing of the Queen was that, you know, human and imperfect as she was, we don't pretend that she was perfect, we don't pretend that she had no mistakes. But despite that, she ruled with a humility and a grace that is so sorely lacking in so much of leadership today. I believe on a level she understood what her role was. She understood that she was in that role not to be served but to serve the people of this nation, not herself. And she herself confessed that That it was the ministry of Jesus that inspired her to do that. I think Queen Elizabeth, in a way, she was the last vestige of a bygone era. Do you see that? How she really was the last figurehead of a time that has now gone. She was crowned in the 50s. She was crowned while there was still rationing. She was crowned in a time before the rise of the mobile phone, before the time of social media. It's a different world. And so it feels as though we are now moving into a a new epoch, which is in some ways exciting and in some ways causes some anxiety, I think. Why was it that we all, so many of us, grieved and mourned her passing? I think it's because deep down, Deep down in each of us, there is a desire, there's a desire to be ruled over by a ruler who is wise, a ruler who brings justice and peace, a ruler who brings righteousness back to the land. I believe that deep down each of us wants a king like the king mentioned here in Jeremiah 23, the one that is called the righteous branch. Anyway, moving on to the text. We're studying today this this name of God. We have a series working through the biblical names of God in the Old Testament. And this name, Yahweh Sidkenu, is Hebrew. It's made up of two Hebrew words. The first is the divine name, which you can see there on the screen, signified by YHWH. Now, the Jews treat this name as so holy that they don't even say it. In fact, in my Hebrew lessons, I'm not allowed to pronounce that word. My Hebrew teacher makes me say another word. That is the holiness that this word stands for. And I think even though we as Christians, knowing that God is our Father, we have no fear of pronouncing this word. But I want you to understand something about this name. I want you to understand something of its holiness, of its gravitas, of its power, that the Jews dare not even speak it out loud. Isn't that incredible? They call God Hashem, which means the name, or Adonai, which means Lord. They will not even pronounce that name because it's too holy. It's a name that belongs only to God, only to God. Remember, we studied another name for God, which was Elohim. Remember we studied that together? I don't know if you've listened back Through the podcast, but the name Elohim, it is given to other entities in the Bible. In fact, it's given to certain angels in the Bible, Elohim. But this name is only ever given to God. It's a very, very holy, precious, and powerful name. So the first word is this name, Yahweh. The second name, Sidkenu, is actually. A word which means righteousness. It means righteousness. And those two letters on the end uh, in Hebrew is a nu and a vav, nu, it means our. So it's one word but it's meaning our righteousness. So it's Yahweh, our righteousness or Yahweh is our righteousness. And it's a name for God that appears just twice in all of the Bible. And both occurrences are in this book. Of Jeremiah this is the first time it's used in chapter 23 and it's used again in chapter 33 to refer to Jerusalem it says in those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land in those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. But here in chapter 23, we're told that this name, Yahweh Sidkenu, it will be the name of a man. It will be the name of a king. A king who is related to David, who will rule and reign and bring peace and prosperity to Judah and Israel. Now, I want you to think, because it's always helpful when we're reading the Bible, not to just read it to try and get nuggets of encouragement for ourselves. So many of us grew up doing that, and there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with opening up your Bible and letting it open wherever it may, and then looking and finding a word that brings encouragement. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. However, that's not how we learn to understand the Word of God. The way we learn to understand it is when we understand what those words meant first to the people that they were originally written to. That's the study of what we call exegesis. is a Greek word which means getting the meaning out of the text and not reading our own meanings into the text, right? So we need to understand how this prophecy of this coming king would have sounded to the Jews that heard it at first all those years ago. Because the idea to them of a righteous ruler coming from the house of David would have seemed really far-fetched. It would have sounded wild at the time. Because David's line seemed to be all but ended. Apart from just a handful of kings, just a few men, Hezekiah, Josiah, Jehoshaphat, and one or two others... All of David's line had become corrupt and degenerate. And now Babylon had come and had taken two of the kings, Jehoiachin and his son Jehoiachin, out into exile. And they'd set up this puppet ruler called Zedekiah in his place. And interestingly, the word Zedekiah, does that sound anything to you like Sidkenu? Zedekiah, Sidkenu, Because it means essentially the same thing. Zedek which means righteousness, and Kaya, which means God is my righteousness. That's what Zedekiah means. And we're told Zedekiah was not a nice guy. He did some awful things, and we read about them in 2 Chronicles 36. It says that he was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear by God, he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following the abominations of the nations, and they polluted the house of the Lord that he made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. God calls these kings, Zedekiah, Jehoiachin, Jehoiachin, he calls them something. He calls them shepherds who destroy Shepherds who destroy. They're kings, but they're called shepherds by God. And these shepherds are shepherds in name only. Because God says they had no regard for his sheep, they scattered his sheep, they didn't look after them, they didn't attend to their needs. Brothers and sisters, I want to make this clear again that just as there were shepherds by name only in the time of Jeremiah, so too there are men and women who are called pastors, shepherds today who are shepherds and pastors by name only. But they do not care for the needs of God's sheep. They're men and women who bear the name only, but do nothing to look after the sheep of God. And God promises to these wicked rulers in Jeremiah that He will attend to their wicked deeds. This prophecy is an oracle of judgment against false shepherds ruling over the people of God. And it's a sobering warning to all false shepherds today. In 2 Peter it says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. How many of you know that heresy is destructive? False teaching destroys. It does damage. And as a pastor, part of my role is to tell you that there is such a thing as false teaching out there. And that it's destructive. It's bad for us. It's not mean to say that there are false shepherds. It's something God commands us as shepherds to do. Bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. How much is that true today? How many atheists do I meet in the streets that hate Christianity because they switched on God TV and watched some false teacher in a white suit flogging their wares? False teachers bring disgrace upon the name of Christ. Their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. So even though we may see false teachers prosper in many ways, this side of glory, there will be a reckoning. It's very sobering. And so we pray... For those who teach falsely in the church today that they would repent that they would turn from their ways or that it would be exposed so that God's true sheep come out because just like this prophecy where God is calling a remnant back to himself I believe prophetically right now in the UK and in the US God is beginning to call back a remnant to himself from all the lands from which the sheep have been scattered this name of God that we're dealing with today cuts right through the heart of the gospel amen you're going to learn today about what the true gospel is not some twisted story all about you but the gospel of God amen the gospel that saves hallelujah the gospel that we're called to herald and to preach whether people like it or whether they hate it it's the gospel that we're called to preach and I'm encouraged today that we're going to celebrate the righteousness of God The righteousness of this ruler. God promises that he's going to gather his remnant in Jeremiah 23. He's going to gather them from all the countries where they've been driven and bring them back to the fold. And often in Old Testament prophecy, there can be an initial fulfillment of that prophecy. But then some of the prophecy isn't quite yet fulfilled. And we're still waiting for some of it to happen. And that's the case with this passage here because in part it was fulfilled when Israel or Judah rather returned from Babylon in about 534 BC under a man named Zerubbabel which means son of Babel and he was a descendant of David but he wasn't a king. Zerubbabel wasn't a king so we can see Jeremiah 23 promises a king not just a man but a king and so it's fulfilled in part but not in full the prophecy also says that when they come back that they will know they will fear no more how many of you want to fear no more how many of you are looking to the day when there's no more anxiety hallelujah praise god how many of you are looking forward to never being dismayed again never hoping in something and having your hopes dashed praise god well this is what we have to look forward to This is what God promises for Judah and Israel and all those who are truly of Israel. The Israel of God. Not just ethnic Jews but those of us who are grafted in through Christ Jesus. Our future is that we will never be dismayed. That we will have peace. Amen. We know that that prophecy hasn't fully been fulfilled yet. It also states that this king in David's line is going to rule in righteousness and that it's under his rule that all Judah Judah, sorry, will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. Well, we know that hasn't happened yet. We know that there isn't a secure dwelling in Israel in terms of the physical land. We can't say either that Judah's entirely saved, can we? Still many Jews today do not believe in Jesus Christ. We know these days haven't fully been fulfilled. We also know that Zedekiah, the king here in the book of Jeremiah that is being spoken about, humanly speaking, he was the last king of David's line to ever sit on the throne of Israel. So we're talking about a very particular point in time here. So let's ask the question who is this king? Who is this branch of righteousness who is promised in Jeremiah 23? Well, let's read Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 2. I shall read it out loud for you. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Who does that sound like to you? Jewish and Christian scholars all together agree that this righteous branch, this man being spoken of in Jeremiah 23 is none other than the Messiah himself. This righteous branch all are agreed speaks about Jesus Christ. That's what George Whitfield said. So we're not talking about Zerubbabel. We're not talking about some other leader. We're talking about the Messiah. That's who the righteous branch is and it's him who Who is given the name Yahweh. It's him who is given the name Yahweh Sidkenu. Is this clicking for you? This is pretty cool, isn't it? This man is given a name that belongs only to God. He is Jehovah, says Spurgeon. Read that verse and you will clearly perceive that the Messiah of the Jews, Jesus of Nazareth, the Savior of the Gentiles, is Yahweh. He has the incommunicable title of the Most High God. Calvin says he is called Yahweh because he is the only begotten Son of God and one of the same essence, glory, eternity, and divinity with the Father. Now I will say this, there is debate over this passage And how much this passage actually proves the divinity of Christ. Because some read it ever so slightly differently. And though I think actually in the Bible there are stronger texts that we could use to prove the divinity of Jesus. I do think it's significant that he's attributed this name here. Because that full name Yahweh isn't attributed to any other being other than God. Yes, you could say, well, didn't Moses call his banner, that altar that he built? Didn't he call that Yahweh Nissi? Well, you don't think that the altars Yahweh, do you? Or you could say, well, isn't Jerusalem called Yahweh Tsidkenu? Well, we don't think that Jerusalem is Yahweh, do we? Yes, granted. But that name, the full name is never given to any other being, any other living being other than God. So I think it is significant. So Christ himself is Yahweh Sidkenu. He is Yahweh, our righteousness. I want you to note something, brothers and sisters. This name here, it's not translated Yahweh is righteous. That's not the translation, is it? The translation is Yahweh, our Righteousness. He isn't a king who's just righteous on his own behalf, in and of himself, but his righteousness is actually something that is shared with his subjects. It actually belongs to them. It's not just his righteousness, but it's our righteousness. It's our possession. All who are ruled by this king take a share in his righteousness. George Whitfield, the great English preacher of the 18th century, said, whoever is acquainted with with the nature of mankind in general or the propensity of his own heart in particular must acknowledge that self-righteousness is the last idol that is rooted out of the heart. You know, by nature, by nature, all of us are born into this world spiritually blind, spiritually dead to our own unrighteousness. We don't think we lack righteousness until we get an encounter with God. And I think Whitfield's right. Because many can sit in the pews in a church their whole life and still think that they in some way are righteous in God's sight they don't need any help from him they don't need grace they don't need forgiveness they're a good person in the grand scheme of things self-righteousness is the last idol that's rooted out of the heart the apostle paul said in ephesians 2 1 and 2 you were dead in your trespasses and sins which you once walked you were dead that's a very severe statement The apostles and Christ himself didn't see us as people who were generally good. They didn't see you as somebody who just needed a bit of help. Right? Pretty good, got a good heart, just need to be taught the right way and they'll be able to make themselves right with God. There's nothing of that in the New Testament. There's no idea of this thing of We're all just generally lovely people who need a little bit of help and education, but we're going to be okay. That's not the message of the gospel. That's not the message of the Bible. It isn't the message of Jesus Christ, and it's not the gospel. You know, the first thing that the gospel is is a proclamation of the absolute ruin of mankind. The absolute ruin ruin of mankind the inability of any of you to make yourself right before a holy and righteous God it's a very very serious thing to have to stand before a holy God on the day of judgment and believe that you're right in his sight without Christ that's a serious serious thing How have we got in this state? How did this happen? How have we ended up in this place where Paul says that we're dead? What can a dead person do? Nothing. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, they they simultaneously, that means at the same time, they lost both their innate righteousness, their innate God-given uprightness of heart. They lost that as well as accruing a debt. They accrued a debt of sin against God when they disobeyed Him and ate that fruit in the garden. They both lost their uprightness of heart, their nature, which was predisposed. You know what that means? Beforehand, conditioned towards God. They lost that. They lost their innocence and instead they accrued a debt of sin against God. And it's that condition. That condition, that fallen condition that Adam and Eve walked into when they sinned, it's that condition that's handed down to every single one of us. Every single descendant of Adam and Eve carries in them that brokenness, that disconnect to God. And all of us then go ahead and build up, rack up a debt of sin of our own against God. I want you to see how serious it is. We're all born with what's called a, a sinful nature. A sinful nature, that's an, a natural inclination towards sin. That's called a sinful nature. You don't know what a sinful nature is really until you understand the law of God. That's why we believe that the law is for today in the sense that we need to hear God's holy standards for life. We need to know what right and wrong is. How many of you understand that the world is forgetting what right and wrong actually are? The standards of right and wrong are being blurred beyond all recognition in culture. And sadly, so many in the church are happy to go along with it. We need the law of God to drive a spear into our sinful hearts and say, This is wrong. Amen? How many of you don't mind being convicted when you read the Bible? I don't mind it because I tell you what, I understand I'm a sinful man. I understand I'm broken in ways that I don't even yet comprehend. (laughs) You ever understood that before? Because God justifies us in one moment, right? We read about that earlier. But he sanctifies us over our whole lives. You'll never finish the journey of sanctification. That is the cleansing of your walk until you go to glory. Do you sometimes look back on your social media profiles at something you posted five years ago and go, oh, wow, yikes. Or a photo pops up, you're tagged in, and you're like, Lord Jesus, have mercy, remove tag. That's called sanctification. That's called God sanctifying you and you being more awakened to sin in your life. It's not a bad thing, it's a good thing. Now, the problem is of our condition and why this name is so important is that to be made right with God, to to be made right with God, to be justified with him, it's not enough that you just have your sins forgiven. Did you catch that? It isn't enough for you to just have your sins forgiven because God is holy God is righteous to have your sins forgiven is a wonderful thing and it gets you out of the red it pays the debt that you owe to God for all of your sinfulness but that's not all that's required God doesn't just require that there's no sin in your life He requires the presence of righteousness the positive presence of obedience in your life to the whole law how many of you have got that? How many of you have loved the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, every single day, every single second of every single minute of your life? None of you. But guess what? Jesus said that's the greatest commandment in the whole Bible. And you break it every minute of every day, brothers and sisters. Now do you see how much you need grace? Now do you see how much you need the righteousness of God? Now do you see how little... Faith is worth putting in your own abilities. Wow. It knocks the legs from under works-based righteousness. God requires perfect righteousness in you. Not just the absence of sin, but perfect righteousness to be right with Him. Now Jesus, this righteous branch, Yahweh Sidkenu, our righteousness. The second Adam, right? Right? That's what he's called in the New Testament. You ever catch that? He's the second Adam. He came to put right what the first Adam got wrong. And it's in his death that he pays for the sins of mankind. It's in his death where your sins are paid for. But catch this. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, it's not just his death that you receive. It's not just payment for sins that you receive. It's more than that. You also receive the perfect life that he lived on your behalf. In the way that he never sinned. In the way that he fulfilled all God's law. In the way that he was perfect. In the way that he did all things well. You also receive by faith his righteousness as your own. Brothers and sisters, this is the doctrine of justification. How many of you understand it's important to know doctrine in 2022? Please. This is the revival that's happening in the church that everybody's missing. Everyone's going to meetings expecting to feel woozy and fall down. There's nothing wrong with that. But let me tell you this. What the Holy Spirit's doing in 2022 is bringing doctrine back to the front seat of His church. People say things, don't they? Oh, I love Jesus. I don't like theology. I just love Jesus, man. You can't define Jesus without theology. You don't know who Jesus is without doctrine. We're talking today about the doctrine of justification. The doctrine of justification. That is His righteousness. Say His righteousness. His righteousness, not mine. His is imputed. Or another word for imputed is charged to my account his works, his goodness his death, his perfect life is reckoned to you as if it was yours hallelujah praise, now we're talking about the gospel, now we're talking about the truth of the gospel, the works the death, the life of Christ, reckoned To all those who believe on him. As if it was their own. As if you did those things. This is what we're talking about. When we talk about Yahweh Sidkenu. This is the doctrine of, of imputation. And it's this doctrine that Martin Luther the reformer. He said upon this truth. Of the imputed righteousness of Christ. The church will either stand or fall. How many of you understand we are going to see churches fall in the next 10 years? Whole denominations are going to crumble and fall because they do not preach this doctrine. They don't believe this doctrine. They don't think they need this doctrine. Spurgeon said, You have mu- as much to thank Christ for in living as for his dying. And you should be as reverently and devoutly grateful for his spotless life as for his terrible and fearful death. Only Jesus, brothers and sisters, only Christ, being both fully man and fully God, can accomplish salvation for you. Only Christ, no other name, and not yourself. He being God, he being Yahweh meant that he could take the infinite wrath of Yahweh against your sin in his body. I want you to capture this. Last week, funny story, there was a massive spider running down the front here. We were all very scared of it until Mr. Smirrell with his size 12s came and stomped on it. Made a real mess. Do you think Mr. Smirrell had to go to jail? He went to ideological jail in my daughter's hearts for a few hours, but he didn't have to go to jail. Guess what? Because the crime he committed was against a spider, against an arachnid, right? What do you think would have happened if he'd stomped on a person? What then? I'm not suggesting that he did. He'd be in trouble there would be charges coming his way, rightfully, because he stood upon a person. Somebody made in the image of God. Somebody with inalienable rights and value and worth. Do you understand that? People have rights and value because of the fact that they're made in the image of God. Regardless of what they believe, where they come from. And when we commit a crime against a person, it's severe because we are marring the very image of God. Now, if it's severe to commit a sin against one of God's creations, against one made in his image, how much more severe to sin against God himself? A being who is infinite in majesty, holy and spotless. Can you think a moment upon the holiness of God? I haven't lived a day when I haven't sinned. But God, it never even enters his mind. He's pure, he's spotless, he's innocent in a way that you will never imagine. And you sin against him every day. Now can you see why you needed God to pay for your sins? Now can you see why a man, a mere man couldn't have done this? Also, Jesus being fully man. Only a man would have been able to stand on behalf of mankind. It wouldn't have been okay for God without human flesh to pay for human sin. Only a man could stand on man's behalf. And this is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans 3 says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested or shown apart from the law, Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Hallelujah. I want to ask you, is God your righteousness today? Is he your righteousness? Because I believe that the idol of self-righteousness, as Whitfield calls it, it is very hard to get out You need Daz to bleach that thing out. That's what I thought of then. Remember Daz? Such a 90s kid. It takes a long time to bleach that out. Do you know know what's a sign of the fact that you're still holding on to self-righteousness? Here's a classic sign. When you sin, when you have a bad day, how many of you have had bad days? When you have a bad day, and you drop the ball you sin you do something that you know is wrong a sign that you may be still leaning a bit into your self-righteousness is when you start getting the feeling that maybe God doesn't love you anymore that maybe God just checked out on you that you somehow severed your relationship with him because you fell Or that God could never welcome you back. So you don't pray for a few days. You you don't read your Bible. You think, well, there's no way I could do that because I messed up. That's a subtle sign that in a way we believe that our salvation rests on us. It's a very subtle way. Now, I believe that as Christians we should grieve our sin seriously. Because the Holy Spirit does that work in us where all of our past works that we used to love doing become distasteful to us but you know what, we're never to doubt the fact that God still loves us, we're never to doubt our salvation even when we sin because your salvation isn't dependent upon you but dependent upon his righteousness another symptom of self-righteousness is bragging boasting you know I'm going to read to you Ephesians 2. The whole thing. Because I want to talk to you about boasting. Another sign of self-righteousness is when we boast in our walk. When we talk about how we have attracted the favor of God by something we did. When we talk about our accomplishments, our achievements, and that it's those that somehow brokered the favor of God into our lives. You ever heard preachers preach like that? You know, I sowed this seed, and God just blessed me. You know, I just postured my heart in a particular way, and and because of that, God couldn't help but put favor on my life. I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna read a verse to you that's gonna show you what grace really means. Ephesians two one to ten, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked. That's everyone. That's all of you. There's no one in this world that didn't begin dead spiritually. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath. This is the Bible. All not under the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ are described as children of wrath. Do you know you were once a child of wrath? Wow. All were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, two of the most beautiful words in the whole Bible, but God... Being rich in mercy. Did you know that? God is rich in mercy. And I am glad about that. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. Do you see you doing anything there? Where's my role? Where's the bit where Graham postured his heart correctly and then God blessed him? I'm not seeing it there. I only see one active party. God but God he made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus for by grace you've been saved through faith And before you can go, oh, my faith, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Brothers and sisters, don't try and mix God's righteousness with your own. Don't think that you can improve upon the perfect righteousness of Christ trust in him alone don't try and mix it don't try and claim your salvation for yourself and equally don't think that you by your own walk can either improve or ruin the grace of God into your life God works faith in your heart he can work good works into your walk Amen. Good works don't save you, but they do prove your salvation. If you want to be saved, how many of you want to be saved? How many of you are saved? Hallelujah, you should know that. We want a church full of people that know they're saved. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. If you want to be saved, let go of any confidence you have in your own works let go of it, drop any confidence in the flesh count your works as nothing you know what Paul says, he says if anyone has confidence in themselves in the flesh, it's me I'm a Jew, he says a Benjamite, a Pharisee gives all of his reasons for confidence in the flesh and he says, do you know what, I count it all as rubbish you know the Greek word that's translated rubbish is a bit ruder than the translation rubbish and I won't repeat it here I count it all as refuse so that I might gain the righteousness of Christ you know what brothers and sisters count all your good works all your faith all of your posturing as refuse let it go and cleave to the righteousness of God put forth in Jesus Christ hallelujah give glory to him for any good that you do Anything that you do in your life, whether it be faith, whether it be hope, whether it be acts of charity, you do them because God works them through you and in you. That's a wonderful, wonderful truth. He works them for his glory and because he loves you. Because he loves you. God's people are those who can say, Yahweh is my righteousness. Yahweh is my righteous that's how I'm justified before God because of Jesus because of Jesus not because of me not because of anybody else because of him Spurgeon said if any man or woman be saved they're saved by divine grace and by divine grace alone and the reason of his salvation is not to be found in him but in God We are not saved as the result of anything that we do or anything that we will, but we will and do as the result of God's good pleasure and the work of his grace in our hearts. Let's stand, shall we? I'm going to invite the worship team back up.